What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nat. Hello, Ben. How you doing? I am doing great. I am so, so excited for tonight's episode. Me too. Me too. We have a really, really special guest here for this episode in which we will cover the film Arachnophobia. But more importantly, our guest is a very good friend of mine who I've known basically my entire life, and we have discussed so many movies together. She is an Emmy winner for her contributions to CBS Sunday Morning and the host of the Giles Files podcast. Please, Ben, join me in welcoming Nancy Giles. Ben. Nancy. Hi. (laughs) This is hilarious. This is so much fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my gosh. Nancy, I have to say, it is a tremendous honor to have you on the podcast. You are far and away the most qualified <laughs> guest we have ever conceived of having. My God. I, On the one hand, I say, wow, that's great. And on the other, I say, God, that's pathetic. But I am. I'm very qualified. No, uh, seriously, I love films. I've actually been on two of the Turner Classic Movies cruises. I was on the very first one. And we have a whole podcast episode where we interviewed a bunch of movie stars. So I love movies. But boy, am I going to get Nat McGee for this one. Did you ever meet Robert Osborne? I did. I did. I interviewed him. He's one of my idols. He was wonderful. He was smart and sparkly and enthusiastic. Just awesome. One of the greats. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, though, they've left the show in very good hands because Ben Mankiewicz is also tremendous. He comes from this big movie family. But Osborne, oh, my God, what a love. Yeah, he was great. He's missed. All right, we are overqualified in this podcast today. This is insane. Um, <laughs> now, what's the deal with Back to the Movies? Back to the Movies is a podcast where Ben and I and any of our guests are going back to a certain year of cinema in order to basically relive the year and just talk about the movies of that year, the good and the bad, and just kind of what made that year what it was. And it's basically just a structure for us to talk about great movies. I think that's cool. movies we don't like. Yeah. Uh, and the year that we're going back to in this inaugural season is 1990, which happens to be the year that Ben and I were both born. Oh, man. You had to go there, didn't you? Yeah. 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 yeah you so guys I... are that young. Golly. <laughs> Golly. Uh, and... It's 30 years ago to 2020 when we're recording this, and so far, it's been a pretty prolific year of cinema, I think. It's been pretty amazing, all the things that we've covered. Now, have you guys been going in chronological order of things that, you know, came out early in the year and then later in the year, or just mixing it up and keeping it within the year? All right. We've jumped around a little, but we're trying to keep it more or less in order. So right now, we're in the summer movie season. Okay, okay. And we're covering arachnophobia. Listeners, you'd be forgiven if you didn't know about this movie oh. because it's kind of a, a underseen, forgotten little film. So, Nat, why is it that we are talking about this little Spielberg wannabe movie with our most prolific and impressive guest to date? Oh, my God, you guys. Uh, Well, I just wanted to have a good time with this movie. And I thought that Nancy would be an amazing guest for this movie because we're going to have a great time. I don't know. Here's the thing. We can start playing the blame game. Uh, (laughs) But I've never seen this movie before. Nancy, I don't think. I hadn't either. I had not. Okay. So we were just walking in 
fresh. We had no idea what to expect. Oh, I see. You're going to turn this around on me. Hell yes, yeah. I am. Yeah, I'm because afraid so. Here's what we're going to be talking about tonight, Ben. I know you're a Spielberg person. I know you you had a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster in your college dorm. All right? I know what's going on here. And I know that you have been suckered by this movie. <laughs> and it's Spielbergian tendencies. So that's going to be our big fight. I don't know where Nancy lies. We haven't discussed at all. Well, Ben, I just I have to inquire as after what Nat said. I mean, just the fact that it had a Spielberg pedigree, that was enough to get you, you know, get you sniffing around it like oh, Spielberg. Oh, there's his name. I mean, was it like that? I mean, it's certainly the case. I I don't remember how I discovered this movie. I don't think it was because of the Spielberg connection. I think it was more because I'm a I'm a big horror movie fan. Okay. And I like creature features and I and I like uh spider movies. Uh, that's a nice little subgenre that I've always enjoyed. So I think I probably discovered it through those channels and then it has those charms that have always appealed to me when I've been watching Spielberg movies. And I and I will I will admit here now in front of you two and God and the listening audience that uh, I stand Spielberg. I think Spielberg is one of if not the greatest film director of all time, he may not have made the most profound or challenging works, but he has a grasp of cinematic language, and it's been said many times before, that is unparalleled. Wait a minute. Unparalleled even by Stanley Kubrick? Think carefully. <laughs> I would say that when it comes to the ability to I heard a pause. tell He's a thinking. story visually. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. trying to think of it carefully because I don't think Spielberg made the best movies. And I will, will, this this whole episode is going to be a moratorium on Spielberg, even though he only has like a slight he connection like, to the He film. like signed one contract <laughs> yeah. and that's all he has to do with this movie. He probably made a bucket of money though. We know oh, that. Oh man, yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't think he made the best films. I don't think that he is the greatest filmmaker on every metric if you were to look at them individually. But when you add them all together, and when you just talk about successfully expressing stories through the visual medium, no one has ever reached his level of commercial success. And I think as far as just like output over decades and decades and decades, you just can't beat him. Wow. Even Billy Wilder? I mean, I'm thinking about stories again, and nobody's going to be as as make as much money because, you know, they didn't have as many theaters back then i mean you know frank capra i seriously i'm and i, I love them all i, I love them all i'm upset David that i'm Wing, coming out with all maybe guys my favorite director yeah um but there's there's just a there's that spielberg magic all right huh. we can unpack it more as we get in the episode i don't want to front load this debate because I, I think it's worth exploring it as it comes up in the production history of this film mm. and as it comes up in the execution of this film but I'm taking it from from the interrogation here. Then, Nancy, you are on Nat's side of this argument. Well, I mean, I think that I haven't seen, I'll be honest, I haven't seen all of Spielberg's films. I think some of them are really charming and sweet, and some of them you couldn't, well, you could pay me to go and see them. I won't lie. I would. I could take money to go and see some of them. But, you know, it's kind of a... Um, an unfair horse race. He's got he's got a lead on everybody else because there are many more movie theaters now and people charge more for movies. So if you you know, it's just it's not the same as it was in the days of the movies that I love. And um, I mean, I but think what about he's his good. contemporaries or even the generations that have followed? 
yeah, okay, we can, we can, let's, we can, we'll bookmark that. You got, you kind of caught me because I'm not we'll into it. We'll put a pin in it. We'll come back. It's so funny <laughs> that we are going to do a whole podcast about a movie that this guy did not direct. And all we're going to do is argue about this guy. Look at it. Look at this. And he's already <laughs> taken up this much time. He's like on our yeah. brains. Well, to be totally honest, when it came time to set our schedule for 1990, I made sure this was on there for two reasons. One, I really like the movie. I think it's a ton of fun. I've enjoyed watching it every single time I've seen it. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> two, because if we're talking about the cinema of 1990, we have to at least do one episode where we talk about Spielberg, and he didn't release a movie that year. His influence on the industry was so profound that you have to address it. And I think that this is the film that gives us that opportunity. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. So he took 1990 off. So have I successfully gotten the heat off of me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, okay, yes. Yeah. Yes, you have. Because I did drag you into it, you Nancy. I'm sorry about it. that. No, that's all right. Um, but now I know who dragged you. So I Exactly. Got it. That's all that matters. Um, <laughs> okay. But um, should we... We've kind of reviewed via talking about Spielberg. So should we get into Ben's book report corner, which is Ben kind of going over the history of production of this film? Oh, I love that. I love production details. And originally, Nancy, to give you the background here, when we started the podcast, I was a little bit embarrassed about how nerdy I would get about the little <laughs> granular details of the production. And I was sure that our listeners wouldn't want to listen to that, but I've decided I'm just going to embrace it at this point. No, we've so. all decided. We've all said we love that. This is what makes us different, that we're not just bullshitting here. Ben and, and me too, but Ben mostly has done hardcore research on the production history of these movies. Let your freak flag fly. Yeah, I love it. And I love knowing that movie stuff. So go for it. Particularly when it's flying for Spielberg. There, there you go. <laughs> oh so to talk about this movie, you have to talk about Spielberg and you have to talk about Amblin. But I don't want to talk about Spielberg as a filmmaker. We can put aside that discussion right now. Okay. Because he didn't make this movie and he had very limited involvement with the actual day-to-day -day production of the film. What I want to talk about is Spielberg as a brand. Oh. I want to talk about him as a genre of movies, as something that was used to design the way a film would be made and marketed, and a set of expectations the audience would have going into that film. Wow. Like, do you think that people would use his name when they were doing pitches like, it's a Spielbergian? Probably, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. The I last mean, 50 years or whatever. Gosh. I'll, I'll lay out the case here in a couple of minutes, but I think that the equivalent of cinema of today would be Spielberg was Marvel. He, as an individual, had that seismic an impact on the film industry. Yeah, I can get with that. Okay. And I don't know that that has ever been paralleled by any filmmaker in history. Some have had aesthetic influences, some have had influences in the business side of it, but none have combined that in the way that he did. So let's break it down. I was going to start this section with us talking about our personal experiences and attitudes towards Spielberg, but I feel like we've sort of covered yeah, that. Yeah, we kind of did. I mean, I don't, have a, <laughs> I don't have an attitude toward him one way or the other. I cried when I saw E.T. I think it might have been because my beloved dog had just died, but you know, I loved it. I've never seen Schindler's List, I won't lie. I remember the movie that he did, Duel, with Dennis Weaver on TV. Yeah. That was a scary 
movie. And that's when they were still doing movies of the week on, on um, ABC. I mean, I grew up with that stuff. So we go back, Steve and I. The TV movie is a great lost art form. I know. I agree with you. Well, don't we sort of have the miniseries now where they do like six episodes? Like I just watched, I will, I'm. you must, what is it? The Mark Ruffalo HBO miniseries. Oh, I have to see that. Twin. Was it any good? It was all right. You know, didn't stick the landing, but I, I enjoyed watching it. It was like watching a six-hour movie. Oh, wow. It's not the same thing because ABC would put out a movie every week, which meant that when Spielberg was 21 years old, Sin Scheinberg hired him to make four TV movies. And that's how he cut his teeth. That's how he, he broke into the industry. And you don't have that that trajectory or that training ground. Yeah, like this was like a huge budget miniseries with an already established director. So I get that. I mean, they basically treated that miniseries like it was a six hour film, whereas the movies of the week on ABC were 90 minutes minus commercials, although there were less commercials than there are these days. And they did probably about somewhere between, I think, 25 and 40 original pieces when they were doing them. I loved them. And there's a bunch of directors who, who did great work there. Michael Mann's another one who had, uh, like, the Jericho Mile was a TV movie that he made. Oh, my um, goodness. Someone could make a lot of money, you guys. Maybe you guys can get the rights to the ABC Movie of the Week and package those, and then you and me and Nat would buy them and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about Spielberg in the 80s and into the 90s, we're talking about Amblin. Amblin was the name of Spielberg's student film that he made while he was in college, and it then became the name of his production shingle pretty much as soon as he entered the industry. So Amblin Productions is officially founded in 1970, but that doesn't really equate to the Amblin as people would have known it in 1990 because it really was just the corporation Spielberg formed to protect his assets while he was making films. It wasn't a company. But then Spielberg comes out with Jaws, and then Spielberg comes out with Close Encounters, and the company starts to expand. A couple key names are added into it. Frank Marshall joins in 81. We'll talk about him a lot in this episode. But then Kathleen Kennedy joins in 82. You know, So we're talking about people that had a huge influence on the industry then and continue to to this very day. In 81, Raiders of the Lost Ark comes out. In 82, E.T. comes out and Poltergeist which is a prominently Spielberg-produced film, ah. film that he supposedly ghost-directed. A lot of people say that he had more to do with the actual direction of that film than Tobe Hooper did. So what, he just showed up on the set every day and was like, hey, hey. Well, Hooper was really sick at the oh. time, so a lot of the, he was very hands-on is the story. He wasn't just lurking around, you know, making signs <laughs> behind Tobe's back, like, no, no, go this way. Don't listen to him, don't listen to him. The camera should go here. Watch me, watch me, listen to, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the famous thing from that movie, and we don't need to spend too much time on Poltergeist, is uh, there's a tremendous scene where the dad looks up into the mirror and his face starts melting. He starts pulling it off. Um, and it's a dummy with stuff on it, but a real set of human hands. And those are Spielberg's hands oh, pulling the, the, the goop oh, off the skeleton. Ew. Um, yeah. So the point is, by the time we get to 1982, Spielberg is the biggest name in movies. He's had this tremendous run of films and he has expanded from just being a director to now being a superstar producer as well. And in 83, Amblin Productions is renamed to Amblin Entertainment and is firmly established as a production warehouse, as, as a miniature studio almost, right. with a large staff producing a lot of films. 
They get a headquarters built on Universal lot, very fancy building that Spielberg designs himself. And from this point on, in the latter half of the 80s, movies are being sold on the Spielberg name. Wow. And the Spielberg style. It's not just movies that he made. It's now TV and animation and other people's films as well. So I just want to run down the filmography because you can really see how it's shaping that Spielberg touch, that Spielberg aesthetic, that Spielberg shadow that looms over the industry. In 84, you've got Gremlins and Amazing Stories on TV. In 85, you've got Goonies, Back to the Future, Young Sherlock Holmes. In 86, he starts a partnership with Don Bluth to try and challenge Disney, and he releases An American Tale. In 87, it's Harry and the Hendersons, An Inner Space. In 88, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Land Before Time. In 89, Back to the Future Part Two, And that leads us into 1990, okay. where we are okay. today. And not, that's not all the films that Amblin produced, but those are the very Spielbergian ones that are definitely contributing to his monolithic status. Yeah, well, mono, mono, money is, I'm thinking, when I hear all of that. Did he have, a, I mean, in all the films that he mentioned, I mean, that's his production company, but in the ones that you mentioned... Was he also like a, a producer of some, a director of some, but producer and... None of those films were ones he directed. No, um, yeah, I was going to say that, but he produced or co-wrote. He was or... producer on every single one of those except oh, for Harry and the Hendersons. Man. Harry and the Hendersons was the only one that was uh, just Amblin and not Spielberg. It shows, it shows. <laughs> well, they made that into a TV show, which was also like not so great, but I never want to offend working actors. I'm glad they all had a job, including the person in the ape outfit, so... Whatever. You know, it's work. Work is work. What's interesting about this period is that Spielberg's films are actually moving away from what you could call the Spielberg brand. He has five films in this period, and three of them are very adventurous films as far as his go. You've got The Color Purple in 85. Big Departure. Empire of the Sun in 87, and Always in 89. Oh. Those films have uh, mixed reputations, I feel like. Pe- the people didn't latch on to them as well. Color Purple was a huge hit. Big critical success. Got nominated for 11 Oscars. Though famously, he was snubbed for Best Director. Yeah, it was a very famous story by a black female author. And Quincy Jones did the score, but a lot of people were pretty chagrined that of all directors, it would be a Steven Spielberg. If it was going to be a white guy, you know, off the top of my head, I can't, I'm, I'm blanking, but like somebody that is great with storytelling, like Alan J. Pakula or... He would have been. Yeah, you know, but anyway, it's interesting you say that because I think he really was trying to change his reputation with that movie. It just so happened that it's an all-black movie, so it was like, what? He wasn't the right person to direct that He was not, no. And so you have that movie, which is really the only successful one of those three, and then the two others, which people have dismissed or forgotten about, Um, I'll stand for Empire of the Sun. I think that movie is way better than people give it credit for. The only Spielberg movies he's making during this period, during this decade, basically after E.T., is Indiana Jones sequels. He does Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. But given how many films that he tends to make, it's a pretty light period as far as his big tentpole action-adventure family movies go. Wow. But he still had his hand between his production company and being a producer... I don't mean to obsess on money, okay? Maybe it's because, you know, things have been tight. The economy's faltering right now. Yeah. But this guy's like, you know, his residual checks are probably in envelopes that thick, is what I'm saying. He's a businessman, and he's a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> when I was researching this, the craziest fact that I learned is that Steven Spielberg gets 2% of all ticket sales to all Universal theme parks. 
What? What? <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> that needs corroboration. I don't know if it's still true, but there was a time when that was a fact. That's like, what is it, like $100 to go there? So you get $2 for every, every single person. person who went to that amusement park was putting money in Steven Spielberg's pocket. Oh, my pocket. God. That's amazing. I'm gobsmacked. I don't even know what to say. I, l- <laughs> let's hope that maybe he takes that and it goes right to a charity because I can't even. Oh, my goodness. By 1990, by the, the time we get to the year that we are covering this season, of the top 10 highest grossing films of all time, Spielberg had directed four of them and produced a fifth. He was half of the highest grossing films of all time. It's amazing. I mean, I I think it also speaks to the fact that the distributors and the film companies were changing the way that they were marketing these movies and the way that they wanted to make money in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. And that's unadjusted numbers, because if you adjust Gone with the Wind is the highest grossing movie of all time by leaps and bounds, um, just because it played for so long Mm -hmm. in so many places Mm -hmm. and continues to play in theaters to this day. Mm -hmm. But his place at the top of the hill was cemented. Like I said before, I just, I honestly can't think of another thing to compare it to another individual. There were superstar producers before him. You've got people like Daryl Zanuck and David Oselznick who were sort of brand names. They were honestly the more prominent and dominant creative voices in their films than the people that they hired to direct them. They weren't getting theme park money. That just put it over the top. So <laughs> I'm not going to fight with you anymore. Okay, you win. He gets. He's getting theme park money. Hand over fist. Fine. You know. But the other thing to note is that his control is so granular. Is that it's not just that he his name is showing up on a bunch of stuff. But I have a couple of quotes here from different Amblin employees saying things like he would read every script for the TV shows that he was producing and he would watch every cut and he would sign off on every crew member who was hired, the production designer, the cinematographer, the visual effects artist. He had a hand in every single step of that process. He would be involved with the film promotion and he would be in the editing room when they were editing the trailers. Well, he should. He's making that much money. He should be there, but I know some people hand off that kind of stuff. I see your point. I mean, considering the the, the breadth of his domain, it's incredible how much control he exerted and therefore how much his influence can be felt. And that's where we are in 1990 at the pinnacle of Amblin and Spielberg as brand and arachnophobia is probably the Spielbergiest <laughs> of Amblin's films. Why is that? I just think the way it feels very Spielbergian, and I think the reason that comes about is that it is directed by Frank Marshall. So we should talk a little bit about Frank Marshall. Who's part of that Spielberg family, pretty much. Exactly. He comes on as a producer on a lot of Spielberg's early films. They rise through Hollywood together. Spielberg makes Marshall one of the most successful film producers alive to this very day. But Marshall does nurse a a desire to direct. He winds up directing four films in total up to this point. And this is his first. Okay. And I think that maybe the reason that this movie feels, you can feel Spielberg's hand on the wheel more than you can in something like Gremlins or even something like Goonies, which should be the most Spielbergian film. It's about kids looking for pirate treasure, but it doesn't, feel quite as smooth and slick as his movies do. It's a little bit rough around the edges. And I think that's because Marshall is just not a director on the caliber of somebody like Joe Dante or Robert Zemeckis or Don Bluth or Richard Donner, the people who were 
directing the other Amblin films. This getting all of this information right now because I didn't. Sometimes I go through the info. Sometimes I don't because sometimes I want to be illuminated by Ben's amazing research. And getting all of this information right now is like it's like I'm investigating a crime that's been committed, <laughs> and I'm getting. I'm like, oh, that's why this happened because. Frank Marshall was this person. I'm like an investigator right now, and I'm in the 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 room with the guy telling me all the info. No, it's like it's Ben is like doing this CSI, and we're, we're yeah. going, going through the veins of the film. Oh, Ben, I'm sorry. I just one. I have one little follow up question. Did Frank Marshall get any of the theme park money? I'm just curious. I don't think so. There's never been an arachnophobia ride for some reason Shoot. or eight below or any of the other movies he's directed. Oh, that's right. Spielberg's a lot of his films are all right. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm trying to justify that. Okay. Well, yeah, it's like Jaws and, and then back to the future was a big ride early in universal. And then obviously uh, the whole Jurassic park world oh, gosh. Of adventure. Right, when right, that opened. Right, right, I right. think that's when the 2% started. Oh, okay. Okay. Perhaps okay. was with, with islands of adventure. I'm obsessed with the 2%. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy number. Yeah. Considering he designed no rides. Oh my goodness. But he owned the properties. He owned the properties that the rides were inspired by, so. And I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised to hear that he was very hands-on during that process oh, I'm by sure. all accounts. He rode the Jurassic Park ride 753 times. Seriously? No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> hey, that's a pretty great ride. <laughs> I bought it hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> So there's one other person who I think may be able to take some of the credit or some of the blame, depending on how you feel about it, for giving this movie such a Spielberg feel. And that's the editor, Michael Kahn, who edited the vast majority of Steven Spielberg's films, particularly his early films. And Nat, you can speak to this. I mean, editors, probably more than anyone, are responsible for the way a movie feels like it's 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 sense of humor, it's pacing, it's. All that stuff that that isn't on the screen but is more emotionally resonant. Yeah, I mean, the editor gets the first cut of all the footage and they're putting it together the day after it's been shot and they're just sitting there with the director. It's the two of them making the movie what it is. Like, as far as actors and production design and cinematography go, that all happens sort of on the battlefield and then the editing is like a super personal two or three people in a room together just trying different things and very intimate. So yeah, editor is a huge part of the movie. Yeah, they can really control the pace of the movie too. I mean, a cut can advance things at warp speed or slow things down. All you need to see is the heartwarming trailer for The Shining where it's about like a happy dad and son learning to love each other um, just to know anything you need to know about editing. Man. I know. I said Kubrick. You know, he's still, Ben is still obsessed with Spielberg. But okay, anyway. I love, don't get me wrong. I love Kubrick too. I would probably say, you know, that that uh, there was a time when I would have claimed him as my favorite director of all time. He's one of my top because the first time I saw, what's the first film of his I saw? It was Lolita. And I just remember sitting straight up going, God, I can literally see the eye of the director, like if the camera felt alive. I've never felt that way about another movie, and, and I find it in almost all of his movies, but in that one, it was so striking. And then I watched some of his other movies, and you know, I think he's pretty 
pretty great. One of my single most memorable um, moments at Chapman was watching 2001 A Space Odyssey from the front row of the big screening theater oh, they had there. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. It was mind-blowing. It really was. I'd seen the movie before, but it was like seeing it for the first time. Now, everybody says you have to be high when you go and see it. Did you guys go? I'm not trying to impugn or anything like that, but what's the story? Were you like... Ben's a major teetotaler. I'm a teetotaler. Wow. I'm clean. <laughs> wow. I tried to smoke weed one time, and Nat <laughs> took me behind the dumpsters of the local high school, and I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm out of here. Well, we're very oh, alike. That's, that describes me in my 20s. Like two attempts were at my face just fell down on a table and that's it and i was like this isn't really fun oh god <laughs> all right no more trial of net <laughs> all right one last thing to talk about hollywood pictures this is the first movie ever released under the hollywood pictures banner under that label hollywood pictures is kind of a fun little artifact of movie making from the 90s in the late 80s there's this pretty sharp contraction in the film industry where mgm closes united artists it'll get resurrected again as it often did that was the the saga of united artists Mm. was uh growing in prominence and then folding and then somebody reviving the name but also we talked about him already in an earlier episode but dino de laurentis is uh facing some tough times right now his company the de laurentis entertainment group was over leveraged, had a huge amount of debt. It had like a production facility it had to sell off and it started selling off its back catalog piecemeal to other distributors uh, for home movie release and basically going bankrupt without declaring bankruptcy. And so Disney comes in and they see this as their opportunity to expand into adult entertainment. They had founded Touchstone Pictures in 84, which was their first sort of adult line of films. And Touchstone was doing great, but Touchstone mostly did kind of higher prestige adult fare. And they wanted something for comedies and thrillers. You keep saying adult entertainment. Uh, I'm not saying a word. (laughs) Movies targeted at adult audiences. Uh, And so out of their desire to have something that that can play in the seedier end of the pool, uh, they found Hollywood Pictures of which Arachnophobia is the first release. Oh, okay. Oh, it was. Okay. But there are some great films that were released under that company, including Sixth Sense. That's like their peak, is Sixth Sense in 99. But by the time it's 2001, they basically aren't releasing any films anymore. And then 2007, Disney says it's done, even though it had been six years since they had even done anything at that point. So it still existed, but hadn't made any movies in that much time. It basically exists for only a decade. And in that decade, it produces a lot of fun comedies and thrillers that you would not expect were Disney films. Wow. All right, cool. Well, there you have it. I've talked enough. I love that kind of passion about stuff. You've got a real knowledge for all of this stuff. And it's funny. What This was 1990, so I'd been living in L.A. for like a year and a half. And I think I was sick of the entire industry by then. I was doing a TV series china beach and i just learned to drive <laughs> and it was you know that there's some crazy stuff there so um so I, that's actually a really good point i've just given us a lot of academic context for what the year 1990 was like in hollywood but you can give us the real on the ground story it was you know for me i'd only been there like a year and a half and it was i won't lie it was weird it was weird being there i grew up in queens lived in Manhattan, was used to running into people in the streets or being on the subway and seeing people reading. And L.A. was just crazy. Everybody's in their car. When they talk about 
the newspaper in those days, they meant the trades, the Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety. The LA Times was not that good a paper and you would find news like about the Rwandan massacre on like page 30 in a corner. And the front page was Jim Carrey's big deal, you know, where he made all this money. And it was just, it's an odd place, but that was a long time ago. But yes, I can remember seeing big billboards for Steven Spielberg and for his movies and being on some of the sets. Um, In 92, I was doing a TV series and we shot at Universal. I just remembered that. So I saw like Amblin or you'd see the signs to that. And I would kind of just look and think, even then, wow, he's making a lot of money. I'm not obsessed by money. <laughs> Matt, stop laughing. I really am not oh obsessed God. by money. I don't know what it, I guess it's just right now. It's like, yeah, you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. But anyway, um, yeah, it was an interesting place. So your Hollywood experience was like, would you call it jaded? No, no, I was, no, I was very, very, very lucky. I went out there because I had gotten a TV series while I was still living in New York. So I moved out there with a job. I just didn't have a driver's license, that's all. And in my first episode of China Beach, I had to drive a Jeep. So it was like, Mm. so I went to Sears Driving School and uh, finally, it's a long story. Let's talk about Venezuela (laughs) and going on... A voyage to kill butterflies. Already that, like, I was <laughs> so annoyed with that. And I, and I, and they're beautiful and I take them for granted. But I, but I did go to this, um, something, it was like an indoor something or other when I went to Costa Rica with friends and there were butterflies all over and one landed on my finger and it was so beautiful. So I was, I think I started writing, Nat, I'm going to get you while I was taking notes <laughs> right then. All know? right. I was used from this Spielberg acolyte. All right, so the movie opens, arachnophobia. There's this helicopter going over the the jungle, and there's this fish-out-of-water guy who's in-over-his-head photojournalist. Manly. What a name. He meets up with this smarmy spider doctor, and they have to go, they have to go into a pit and find spiders, I, I guess. I didn't really know why the guy was there in the first place. I guess he was there to take pictures. I I guess. I mean, and and look, I under, I was always a bad science student and and geology was maybe a little bit better cuz it's a little more tactile, but I'm like, really there, there are people that like this is what they study and this is what they do. I mean, so part of me was kind of like, okay, all right. And what's his name? Julian Sands is such a strange actor also. <laughs> I I I was looking at him thinking didn't he have that big thing with um, Kim Basinger where they were supposed to make a movie, and but I think her limbs are supposed to be cut off or something weird like that? Ben would know. Ben, I'm not I don't know. What? I was, my, my reference point for Julian Sands, I was not, I was going to ask, did you ever watch the TV show uh, Jackie Chan Adventures? I the did. animated kids really? show? He's was, Valmont. He's the right. bad guy in the I, series. <laughs> Jackie Chan Adventures was one of the ones that I would change the channel for. <laughs> Oh, God, I love that show when I was a kid. Huge Jackie fan. So these guys, Mm -hmm. we spend like 15 minutes with these guys. Yeah. It's a long time to be with these two jerks. I know. (laughs) And because we spent that much time and because I guess I'm sort of jaded, I was thinking, okay, so clearly something's going to happen to somebody. Who's it going to be? Yeah, yeah. exactly. But it's classic Spielberg too. Like Close Encounters opens with a really long sequence before we meet Richard Dreyfuss's character. Uh, Even Indiana Jones has that really long opening sequence, which is basically its own little short 
Indiana Jones film. Jaws but, has okay. a pro- extended prologue. Let's let's get into this discussion because we talked about the academics of the whole thing. But can you just take a producer guy who's like, I really want to direct, and just take another person's entire vision of film and their entire not just like oh i stole this shot or oh i stole this plot line it's it's just like i'm taking your soul and trying to make a movie without you making the movie it's like cheap fake picasso to me so it, you're it, calling Frank Marshall a, dr- uh, 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 a vampire? Is that basically what you're I'm saying? I'm sorry, but you're just taking the essence of a guy who clearly loves film. And he's brought so much to the table. Because, listen, I'm not here to hate on Steven Spielberg. I've done it in the past, but I've kind of re-watched some of his movies. And I'm like, no, this guy is legit. He knows what he's fucking doing. And he's got a vision as sort of juvenile and sort of like the childlike wonder, uh, at least for like all those movies we've been talking about. Yes, yeah, yeah, like it's a good thing that he's got going. But the amount of people that have tried to just suck it dry from arachnophobia to Stranger Things to It to all of that stuff to J.J. Abrams, it's just like I can't stand it. I don't like it. And I don't find it charming, and I just find it kind of lame. Well, do you think it could fall under the category of imitation? Is this a serious form of flattery type of thing? Like, no, because uh, <laughs> of the money that you were talking about for oh, the last 30 minutes. no, you know what? That's a darn good point, yeah. Because of the money. it's ex- We talked about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles a while back, which was another 1990 movie. What a year. And ben was talking about how he couldn't watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with a straight face and take it for what it was because he knew that behind all of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were action figures that needed to be sold. And yeah, but Team and T, the my problem with Team and T is it was like mainlining drugs to kids. You know, it was like kids get your parents to spend this money on these toys and on this merchandise. Let's, let's talk about theme parks then. Arachnophobia that the didn't big have boss merchandise. Is, let's arachnophobia. talk about the 2% that the boss is making off these yeah, movies. but that's not arachnophobia, Sin. Okay, it's not arachnophobia. So they didn't come up with arachnophobia like pet spiders or spider they, dolls. You know. what, the, the, I'm sure that the story here is that there was a... Actually, the story was Jeffrey Katzenberg read a script about killer spiders, thought it sounded makeable, and said, Hey, Frank, you were looking to direct a movie, right? Why don't you try this one? And Frank Marshall's like... You know, I don't want to do anything too difficult or complex in my first at bat. This seems like a movie that would be well within my wheelhouse, given my experience. And what I will say about this movie is that if I'm going to make a movie about killer spiders, if I'm going to watch a movie about killer spiders, I kind of feel like the Spielberg mode is where I want that movie to be. I want it to be fun and thrilling, but not too heavy or dark. Maybe... You could convince me that like something like Joe Dante would be better with a little bit more glee and sadism in it. But I still am perfectly happy to watch a fun adventure film about, you know, a, a, a waspy scientist man having to, to fight his way around packs of terrifying little spiders. They were gross. They really were gross. I will say that. 
let's keep moving through the plot a little bit yeah. just so we can kind of move this along. Oh, so, should we talk about our hero? Oh, wait, I want to say Daniels? one thing about the because I kind of took some notes. Sometimes when I watch movies, if I feel especially like bitter and it doesn't make sense because I've had some small parts in movies <laughs> and I've done fine, you know, but every once in a while I think it would have been so nice. It could have just been one one decent scene in a big hit movie. You know, OK, anyway. <laughs> So when, I, when I'm feeling particularly embittered, I'll look at these movies and I'll point out like a, an, a, a very tiny part and say that would have been my part. So as I was watching this movie in the beginning, um, this is still with Julian Sands and it's right after they've taken the pictures and whatnot. And then I can't exactly remember what the scene was, but there's this native guy that's got some markings and Julian Sands goes... This is as far as he goes. And I thought, yeah, that would be oh my, my part. That would be my part. And then they, you had a nice, there was a nice moment where he was standing there with like the markings just kind of staring. I don't think he had any lines. He's just like, look at these idiots. He's just like, <laughs> oh my God. That's my part. Anyway, They're okay. going into this thing. All right. So he dies, blah, blah, blah. The thing bites him in the tent and no one, it's just the first of probably like, what? 7,000 coincidences that well, no one realizes yeah, that this it's is a spider. Yeah, I was wondering, did anybody, <laughs> after he dies, did anybody take his shirt off and look for bite marks? It's like... Well, he, he had the fever, so they're like, oh, it's the fever, whatever. Yeah, I know, and it's not... Still, that just seemed lame, like, yeah, and Julian Sands was like, you know, we need the film. Oh, yeah, call his family. I mean, he had his priorities straight. Where is his camera? Oh, then call his family. Thanks a lot. All the screenwriting stuff, it's... All very smart and clever. And they do come up, I will give them credit, they come up with a reason for every little thing that happens. Yeah, but yeah. after a while, I just started getting pissed off about it. I was like, <laughs> there's just too many happy little coincidences. Even though they're perfectly great and clever, I was just like, I can't stand this anymore. I'm really, I, Ben, I'm really sorry that I'm just completely. No, it's fine. I don't know if I agree <laughs> coincidence is the right word. The spider could have gone anywhere and the movie would have taken place there. It's not like we we were already invested in Jeff Daniels, Dr. Ross Jennings before the spider arrives in Kanaima. The spider goes to Kanaima, so the story goes to Kanaima. It's true. Not it's a true. coincidence. It's not, it wasn't the big picture stuff. I was talking more about like, Oh, they just happened to step on the book that the spider was under. Well, of course, <laughs> but wait a minute. Uh, how was all it, that uh, shit. How was I love that. The photographer's coffin had that hole in it. What was that? It explains it right away. The holes were for the, the posts that they pushed through it to carry it. Oh, that's right. I actually right, had the same right, thing. Where right. I've seen this movie like four or five times. I and I saw that giant hole. I'm like, man, that's, that's a little dumb. bit sweaty yeah, yeah. that that would be there. And then they immediately okay. put the posts and pick it up. And I'm like, I, I you know what? I forgot. To okay. their credit, they got all the things right, but I, I just, I, I didn't like it. I was just like, screw you after a while. Okay, <laughs> so we end up in the town, the small California town, and we meet mm -hmm. a couple of the residents. We got Roy Brocksmith returning from Total Recall, playing the, 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 the funeral director. That guy was great. Okay, so then we meet Jeff Daniels. Let me say right now that this movie is not immune to criticism in my eyes. I don't think that it is one of the great films. I just think it's a very, very competently made and enjoyable creature feature programmer. One of the big points of criticism I have is that the performances are all over the map. There is no consistency in the way that the people of this town are characterized. And you can just look at somebody like Irv Kendall 
the character, the, the mortuary director played by Brock Smith, who is slightly heightened above normal and compare him to John Goodman, who is playing in the stratosphere. Oh my God, totally. And compare the them. I mean, even his name, that's a musician, isn't it? Delbert McClinton. Isn't that, that's a famous musician, I believe. Oh. Yeah. But yeah, he came in like Elvis. Yes. Oh my God. You know what I mean? That was, no, that's a good point. There were all kinds of different acting styles. Now the lady who played Jeff Daniels' wife, um, Harley Jane Kozak, I was, <laughs> I was a fan of hers because she used to be on this soap opera called Santa Barbara. And coincidentally, because I'm, um, I'm as freaky as you both are, uh, I, I remember her character because she played this nun who then fell in love with a guy, and which was a big you know, conflict, her being a nun and whatnot. And she decided, I believe this is what happened. And this, I'm going from memory. I did not Google this. Once she fell in love with Mason, that was his character's name, she left the church and shortly thereafter, she was killed by a neon sign. She was on a roof somehow and a big neon sign hit her and killed her, her character. So that was the end of her. Yeah. So anyway, just wanted to share that with you guys. I love it. Yeah. Was that the basis for the uh, SNL Californians? The, no. What? Uh, soap opera? You know oh, that, yes, that... yes. Yes, it was. Okay. Yes. It sounded like it must have been. <laughs> yes. The Santa Barbara. Yes. All right. Okay, go on. We've got Jeff Daniels. Daniels, his first film credit is Ragtime in 1981. Ah. He has a killer 80s. Meaty supporting roles in Terms of Endearment. Lead in Purple Rose of Cairo. Something Wild, Jonathan Demme's big breakout movie. And so he's kind of, he feels kind of like a big get for this film. He's done a lot of really interesting and serious work. And... This is like kind of him slumming it a little bit, right? Well, did he think this was the the big Spielberg hit that was going to make him like a Richard Dreyfuss, Harrison Ford guy? He needs his franchise, yeah. I don't know. Well, gosh, but everything he'd done up to that point was definitely well-received. Terms of Endearment was a big hit, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, not a blockbuster. like pretty small role in that. It's a good role. It's a good role, but you despise him. Maybe he got paid a lot of money for this. I think maybe the... It was the checkbook thing. You this know? is like him doing a Marvel movie mm-hmm. in 2019 or 2020. Because you said Spielberg is the Marvel of 1990, basically. I think he's great casting in this movie because he feels like a very 1990 version of the classic scientist hero of like 50s B movies. He's he's a little bit softer than they are, a little bit more like nebbishy or in his case yes. waspy. Yeah. Uh, but it is part of that lineage. You've heard the the whole uh, explanation about why actors do movies. Sometimes it's a, a paycheck movie. Uh, sometimes you don't make any money, but it's a director you really like, or it's a great script where you don't, might not make movie and it might not be a great director, great script. A, a lead part is another reason. Um, great billing can be another reason. All these variants that aren't always determined just by bucks, but bucks can be a big one. And certainly connecting with Spielberg wouldn't have been a bad thing, right? I don't have any particular problem with Jeff Daniels in this movie. I have a little bit of a problem with like how much screen time he gets in this movie. For a movie that's like about a small town with like all these different characters and people, I was just like, the end of the movie is just Jeff Daniels. I know. For like the hero of our movie is the main that. character. No, no, it's not that. It's not that he's the main character. It's that... The movie is following this guy around everywhere. 
it's not like Jaws. It's not like Tremors even, where you kind of get a little bit more of everyone else. I don't know. In, in this, it was like everyone else was just kind of an ass, and then we focused on him for <laughs> way too long. He was not interesting enough to be followed for as long as he was. I think that they thought maybe by making the main character deathly afraid of spiders and then putting him in but you know it's funny you say that because yeah that was interesting for a while but then it was then it was like oh i guess in the end he'll be the one that's going to be battling la 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 you know when his wife early in the film when they first get to the new house and she's like come on you should look look at the webs oh you have to get over being afraid of spiders <laughs> oh come on psychology come on i thought that'd be a deal breaker i tell somebody i'm deathly afraid <laughs> of spiders and they're like, oh, come on, honey. Just look at the web. I'm divorced. What, why are we talking? Major red flag. Yeah. Major I have don't flag. You think? a phobia, a fundamentally irrational fear of spiders. That you know of, that I've told you about from when I was two years old. And you are saying, oh, come on, honey. That was bad. That was a little and bad. And then literally the first time they go look at a spider web, a, a rat in a spider web falls in. That's like we're selling the property. Now. <laughs> um, I know. So let's, let's keep going. I... Again, I don't know if we need to get into too specific details unless there's anything we want to shout out. I just, I we got to talk about this next sequence because it's one of the more daring and odd sequences in the movie. It's short, but as Dr. Ross Jennings is getting settled into his new home in Kanaima, uh, he settles down for a, uh, a romantic evening with his wife. The music swells, and then we cut to our Venezuelan spider finding his spider love. Oh, Did you guys yes, think that was, this was so weird. weird? I, I wrote, I, I, I hope you can see this. The, the spider's making out, question mark? Holding hands, question mark? I was like, what's going on? It's a really interesting choice. That was gross. That was just... I, I don't know. I, I, it's the smart screenwriter being like, well, they need to mate in some way. So <laughs> oh I will do the mating scene of the humans <laughs> right next to the spiders mating. And I am so smart. I thought of everything. Why didn't the, the, guy, why didn't the, the spiders have cigarettes afterwards? Why didn't we see more <laughs> of the sequels? You know? It was pretty smoky in that shot. Um, to get thematic for a second, obviously every animal-based horror movie and creature feature is about man's complex relationship to nature, right? How we are a part of it and yet how we fear it, how we try to dominate it and how it dominates us. And I do appreciate that the movie is making a very explicit connection here between the humans, the spiders and the act of making love because it's when we're at our most animal, when we are, there's the, the, the least divide between us and them. Spidey love. That was cool. Yeah. <laughs> When we're talking about spiders and spider love, should we talk about our personal quickly on spiders? Like one to ten, are you a spider hater? Are you a spider lover? I'm not a spider lover. I mean, I also had issues with uh, the mom taking the spider outside into nature. No, I see when I step on it. That's the end. Really? You're a spider killer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, why did you have to put it like okay. that? Why you be like well, that? Well, because you said you would kill a spider. You said what? you would kill a spider. But here's another little... So I have... But I'm not parent... And plus, let's be honest. Those weren't spiders. Those were like animatronic puppets. Those were tarantulas. <laughs> they were tarantulas. meaty. They were, meaty. They were tra- Yes, they were overweight tarantulas. 
that was just like, and it's it's one thing when you see a little spider and and not, you know and a web and that can be, but those things were huge. They had like you know shotgun yeah. legs, you know. Yeah, they had they. You could throw them on a grill and have a, <laughs> a good meal. Um, ben, spider, spider take. I actually really love spiders. Okay, I don't love them to be on or around me, but I find them beautiful. I mean, I think webs are one of the most interesting things that an animal creates, but my fiance hates spiders. Okay. So she has a kill on side policy and she can't kill them. So that means I am her (laughs) instrument of murder. You are a spider killer for hire. Yeah. You don't even care about the kill. I love her. He's a spider killer for love, Nat, for love. Right. Right. Um, I am a spider bro. You are really live and let live. Yeah, they kill the other insects. That's how I always look at it. Oh, they are oh. on our side. I have no problem with them. So I think that was another reason this movie didn't really hit for me because every time it was like dee 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 spider spider, <laughs> I was just like, my bro, there's my spider bro. Just hang out. Yeah, he's just coming in for a hug. He's just coming and hang. So and basically, you wanted more of the spider love scene, didn't you? You were like, <laughs> I want to know how my bros handle this. <laughs> Let me see if I can get some lessons. <laughs> Do you want to talk about um, any of the other townspeople? Well, I thought I will say this. I thought that the retiring doctor that was was that Henry Jones was that that actor? Yes. Yeah, who's I've seen a lot of stuff. He was on the show Phyllis years ago. He and many many more. Any um yeah, something else just popped into my mind, but I can't remember. I thought it was pretty slick that uh, he's going to retire, and then he's like, and and of course Jeff. Daniels and Harley, they changed their whole life. They moved there. And then he's like, yeah, you know, I was thinking about it. No, I'm not going to retire. So, ha, 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 I mean, that was kind of low. And Yeah. Oh, he's super low. He was super low. And then, then it's like he's casting aspersions and making it sound like Jeff Daniels is going around killing patients almost. But then he got it. So, ha, ha. Oops. And- I think he's my favorite executed of the townspeople. He has, like, the most consistent characterization where I kind of get where he's coming from. Um, Unlike someone like, you know, Irv, whose whole thing is that he just eats all the time. Mm. Dr. Metcalf is, like, this guy who likes to feel important and can't stand to retire because then he'd lose that. And then, you know, becomes a great antagonist to Dr. Jennings here in the beginning. Um, And I think all that stuff, I mean, Nat, you were saying the screenplay is pretty well structured. This sequence here where the spiders are killing people and it's almost like the blame is falling on Jennings is all pretty well constructed where it's all pretty believable. Like none of the characters is acting totally outside of logic to make this happen. I agree with you on that. I'm going to keep hating on this movie though. I mean, obviously the biggest point of comparison is Jaws. There's yeah. so much yeah. with okay. Jaws. These two, those two, these two movies are so connected, and I'm and not. The doctor wants to be the mayor. Exactly, the doctor wants to be the mayor. Um, and I, I'm not one to just always compare to like the greatest movies of all time. But I'm sorry, there's it's just such a comparison that you have to make because of the whole Spielberg thing. And Jaws, I understand it not only on a personal level for the mayor, but also just like a societal level, like. Right. He's got to keep the town alive. Like he has a reason for this. And this is just like it's very good screenwriting in that yes, they've given a reason to the doctor, but it's like all just contained to the doctor. There's no like bigger world to any of this. 
You're right. And that just You're absolutely I'm right. sort of like yeah, not moved isn't. by it at all. I'm just sort of like, okay, they thought of a reason for the spiders not it has nothing to do like Jaws I can look at now and be like, yeah. holy shit, coronavirus is a thing. And it's the exact same dynamic. And it's, there's people being like, We can't <laughs> close our that's businesses. Right. I, I will be happy to wax poetic about Jaws anytime. It's one of my all time favorite films. The kind of scene that you're talking about that this movie just can't have is is when they're sitting down for the meeting where Quint is introduced. And we get a good, like, 45 seconds of just small talk between the different people of the town. And you've got the woman who writes for the paper who's like, uh, you know, if they shut it down, that's just not okay with me. That's just not okay with me. And we get these really great details that flesh out Amity and make it a real There's place. There's not enough of those, though. Yeah, yeah. Those do make it feel like a real place. This has, apropos of nothing, I was kind of hoping that uh, Stuart Pankin would get killed by the spider, but that didn't happen. He's the uh, the guy who's complaining about having to drive people everywhere. Oh, the cop. That uh, the police, I think that's that actor's name, the cop. Yeah. But my overall point is that when you don't have any of that kind of making you think about real life and society, all I see is someone trying to rip off Spielberg with sure. the filmmaking techniques and the music and, and all that stuff. And then I just start getting annoyed. Well, uh, <laughs> let me, let no, me make my coup de grace. Let me make my, <laughs> my argument for the merit of this film. And it ties in nicely to where we are in this the plot because after we meet all these townspeople okay. and after we've seen the spider making nookie, there is a, 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 a hatching and a bunch of little spiders spread out across the town and people start to die. And let's talk about right. these spiders because the thing that's crazy about this movie is a lot of these spiders, including a lot of the big ones are real spiders and they're really there oh my on God. set with the actors. And you can really tell because they filmed it so that you could tell. The spiders, the little spiders, they're a, a New Zealand spider called a, a, a Delana spider or a Flat Huntsman or an Avondale, depending on who you ask. Um, and they did this thing when they were making the movie where they auditioned different breeds They did of not. Did they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I heard there was at least 10, 10 breeds, and these ones were picked because they're large and they're very social. Most spiders aren't social, but these spiders didn't mind being together, and they are harmless to humans. Ben? Were they union spiders? Do we know? Because <laughs> well, I'm, they I was say a union very advocate specifically for that no spiders were harmed in making the film. When John Goodman steps on the spider, his boot had a big hollow hole in it so that oh. he wouldn't squish it. How nice for him! So the spider was on his foot. <laughs> oh, were um, all of them real, or 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 some of so them? Some of the big ones, like they mix between puppets and then like actual like tarantulas that have things stuck onto them. But that that's some job. That that's what's that a prop mister mistress or ha, pop, prop master who would stick things on a tarantula? They they would do all kinds of crazy stuff uh to get the spiders to do what they wanted so they would like use wax to stick metal plates to them so they could move them with magnets and and also like filament lines so they could pull them. Uh do you know Nat who is one of the members of the special effects team I of this not. movie, one of his first films? Mythbusters own Jamie Heineman. Oh, yeah, cool. Well, I think that's like a, one of our generation's, uh, you know, celebrities, touchstones, right? Totally. Everyone yeah. knows Mythbusters. Yeah. Not me, but okay. Not uh -huh. me. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
sounds they would good, do things right? like the, the 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 Avondale spiders were sensitive to heat and cold, so they would use that to direct them. They wouldn't step on a um, lemon pledge because it got stuck to them. So they would spray lines of lemon pledge to make like little lanes for them to move down. All kinds of crazy stuff. But ultimately what it would boil down to is they would set up the shot and they would put the spiders in the shot and they'd put the actor in the shot and they'd wait until the spiders did the thing that they had to do. And they would take take after take after take. And it became a game. The crew members would join the spider lottery where you tried to guess how many takes it would take to get the shot. Those spiders were screwing with them. They were really, they were messing with them. So wait a minute. You want to tell me though that none, not even any of the little teeny ones ended up getting, you know, plots squashed. According to the filmmakers, no spiders were harmed in the f- making of the film. Yeah, because there were a couple of spider close-ups that I could have done without where we saw the spider's eyes getting big and then it's starting to move. Look, it's starting to move another way. I mean, yeah. The, uh. So but some I of think... them were puppets. Some of the big ones were puppets. Some of the biggest big ones. They, they There was a big spider that they called Big Bob in honor of Robert Zemeckis. That, that was a real spider that played the... the the general spider, okay, the one that the came from Venezuela, one, yeah. but they did augment it. They like painted it and put extra pieces on it to make it look bigger, but there were also puppets for some of the action sequences too. Um, yeah. But Ugh. the point I want to make here, uh, the actual argument about what this brings to the film is there are so many great sequences and shots that make such great use of the spiders and their relationship spatially to the actors. It's the one thing Jaws can't do because the mechanical shark is no good, but it's basically scene after scene of Brody chumming the water and the shark coming out. And it's, Because that's and what they were able to pull off repeatedly. And okay. I think all that stuff is really effective. I think basically every one of the spider sequences works, is fun and thrilling and scary and funny and inventive. Well, I watched it by myself, and and I w- I kept going no oh you know I couldn't you know, the spider going coming out of the dead guy's nose and um, even things like it going into the 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 slipper of the doctor just the idea of putting your of thinking you're relaxed and you're at home and you can put your foot in your slipper without something yeah I mean and in that way the injuries were a lot more personal than than Jaws yeah so I can see that point but give me. Give me that throwing the chum into the water <laughs> no, any that's, day of the week. No, no, no. You're look, any day of the week. That's I don't fabulous. care if you have a real great white on set that you're getting close ups of. I don't care if you don't have the soul behind your movie. Then no, I know. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I'll appreciate it. I love spiders. Sp- I'm glad spiders got jobs out of this movie. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they got the I, union I was, cards. <laughs> I'm just like I. I couldn't get past this stuff, but I'm glad that we're appreciating like the crazy craft that went into it. And I'm looking at it on much more like, I don't know, emotional level. Um, emotional is right, Nat. I think you need, you might need meds. I'm I think worried. I need some meds. It's yeah. very true. No, the chum scene in Jaws is, is peerless. I mean, it's the way that it happens, the casual way the, the fish is going in, the hugeness of the thing, and then the way we see Roy Sh- it's it's crazy. What makes the jo- the chum scene so iconic is the reaction shot. Exactly. Is Scheider popping up into the frame, yeah. which is one of the greatest shots of all time. 
And this movie doesn't have those. This movie doesn't have many great spider reactions. It's mostly people thinking they're totally fine. And then the like they don't, it's all about us, us knowing that the spider's there, which can be super, it can be super dramatic. But in this one, it just didn't get me that the irony that they don't know what I know, which the the pulsating spider compound was pretty gross i mean that was i can't say that that was that was that was really yeah that was hard to watch let's talk about john goodman and oh god i i thought john goodman was gonna be the savior of this movie i was really like oh shit okay he's coming that'll save the movie that's what i thought too and he wasn't he just came in and i was like no what are you doing He was the worst, the worst exterminator I've ever seen. It was like a belly flop. I was like, oh, here he comes, the finisher. He's going to be the one that brings it all together. And then it's just like, John, dude, no, you fucked up. Uh, his, is, did you guys get shades of Bill Murray and Caddyshack? Yes. From this performance? I wrote it down. The I sort of down. mumbly, laid back. Oh, it's so Caddyshack. sure, sure. No, I just thought he, he appeared more like a big overweight Elvis or something like that. He almost <laughs> posed like that when we first saw him backlit and everything. And yeah, but he was, he, you know, he wasn't a, he wasn't even a good exterminator. Like, and, and that could have been funny if they really played that up, but it was kind of like, I don't, I don't. Yeah. Something happened with that part. I don't know. They like, it was like two cheese. I think they just, I'll tell you, it up. I don't hate the performance. I don't think it's totally consistent with some of the other performances. We've already talked about that. I'll tell you what I do hate. I hate his musical theme. So bad. It's so self-aware it's so and bad. so cheesy. It it kind of undercuts the comedy of his performance because it's forcing it down your throat. Right, right, right. It's a, it almost felt like they stopped writing his part. Like some some pages were missing or something. And they you know? wanted him to be cooler than he actually was. Like he's got that big moment where he has the dual wielding exterminator guns and you're just like dude you suck right now like well, you're the, not cool at not all not only that but the guns the exterminator <laughs> guns didn't seem to work the the, no. the you know the the uh, the spiders were like yeah you know try again Do yeah, you know what's a better version of this idea have you guys seen mouse hunt the gore verbinski movie no oh yeah i christopher remember walken comes yeah, in yeah, as yeah, yeah. an exterminator halfway through that movie and he has like crazy gadgets and a yeah. really ridiculous design. And it's it's this, but with the Gore Verbinski heightening that actually makes it work. I felt duped. I really felt like John was coming in to save the day, and he didn't. He made things worse. He made things worse. You know what he made me think of watching him in this movie is I feel like the Goodman of the 80s is so different than the Goodman of my childhood. The, like the Raising Arizona and the True Stories and this, where he's very cartoony. Mm-hmm. And then you compare that to something like, I don't know, Big Lebowski or even like Barton Fink, which only comes out a year after this movie, where he plays like a more nuanced. I don't want to say grounded because they're not grounded. Nuance is a good word. Yeah. Like it feels like an extreme person, but still a person. Well, where here it feels like a cartoon. Yeah. Well, I think they were probably hiring him straight from Roseanne, where that character is is not cartoonish. I mean, I think he made Dan Connor it grounded him in some reality, but he's larger than life. And I always thought there was more to him than just that, because you could kind of see it in Roseanne. He mm-hmm. was he had some depth. So then maybe after he got some uh, credits, he was able to flex his muscles and get better parts. Well, and the other credit that leads right into this movie is he's the third lead in the Spielberg movie Always that comes out in 89. 
Oh. He's like the comic relief in I that see. romance movie. So we'll jam through. A lot okay. of people die. Yeah. <laughs> they figure out what's going on. They, you know, all the pieces come together. They right. get the spider guy back into the town to check. First, there's another spider guy for no reason. Then they get the other yeah, spider guy, guy. That kid, I feel like maybe in an earlier draft, he was like a love interest yeah. or maybe like the coach's daughter or something. <laughs> there's, but, yeah, there's, he, why does that character exist? He had so no function. So that weird. Was weird. Yeah. Because you know why? I think it was like, oh, we need a Richard Dreyfus in Jaws. Maybe this guy will do it. And then they just bring nothing to the table. But that's Atherton because then Atherton comes in. But Atherton is the jerk. I I don't know. I yeah, anyway, anyway. So much. Moral of the story is we figure out that it's all coming from Jeff Daniels' house. That's where the Venezuelan spider is. That's where all the baby spiders are coming from. And if they can kill, if they, they have to kill the Venezuelan spider and the queen that he produced. Right. Because if right. they don't, these spiders will literally destroy the world. But I mean, we knew that it was going to be there because of all the spider webs in the very beginning. So that wasn't even a surprise. We've been waiting for the characters to catch we've up. With been what we've been catching. Yeah, we've known this entire time, which again makes it a little dull. It makes it a little dull. Well, uh, I want to talk about the climax though, because even as somebody who does quite love spiders, I get very anxious during this sequence when they're all pouring out of the walls and dropping from the ceiling. Best sequence I, I, in the movie. That one really gets me tense. Yeah. I don't care about a single spider crawling around on someone's nightstand, but hundreds of spiders freaks me out. That sure. that was freaky. But come on, Nat, the one that came out of the dead man's nose, that was bad. That's bad. That was the I mean, one. Maybe that I would one. be into that. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the one that got Grace was the one in the shower. She literally jumped off the couch. She couldn't take it. She was Yeah, that was bad. And and again, a woman vulnerable in the shower, that's just so It's easy. Yeah. It's cliche. Yeah, I hate that. I thought that they were going to do something even worse with the spider, like have it get one of her, you know, because I was the like, guy where on are the they toilet going with it? as well. Uh, yeah, it's all terrible. Um, so can we talk about? I'm sorry, but he gets locked in the cellar. There's all these characters. The There's all these characters that are all together doing cool stuff. John Goodman's going in. Ugh. The 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 doctor gets killed. And there's a sheriff that could get killed. There's a wife that could get in danger. There's Jeff Daniels. I'm not. It's just there's a lot of people in this movie. But for some reason, we spend 15 minutes alone with just Jeff Daniels and the spider. And I got so bored of well, just being in that cellar for so it long. It was long. It was long. Plus, it's the cellar of the house. And you mean that no one can hear him screaming? I mean, isn't the... We see for a moment when he doesn't get out when the other doctor falls off the ladder. We know that he's still inside. His wife knows that she, he's still inside. Isn't anybody looking for him or anything like that? There, there are little lapses like that that got on my nerves a little. You know, I will say this sequence has my single favorite shot in the whole movie, which is when the big spider is crawling from cover to cover and Jeff Daniels is shooting the flamethrower at him. And the shot is framed, so we're like almost like like along with the spider and it's just a really fun shot. That's really well executed where he fires and the spider moves and we can see all of it really well. I think yeah. that was a really impressive shot. Actually, there was, there's you, lots of, go sorry. ahead, Nat. No, I was just gonna say there's lots of impressive stuff, but it just doesn't add up to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was able to sort of parse things out too. I'm glad you mentioned that about the um, camera work then, because I was thinking 
boy, this was before GoPros and before drones and all that stuff. And there was some really cool, uh, there's some cool camera work there that must have, you know. That they're shooting on big 35 millimeter cameras. Heavy stuff, yeah. Um, speaking of how this movie kind of loses its track at the end there, my, my big problem with the ending is how the movie just like kind of yada yadas its way around all the baby spiders, which are the ones that have been killing people the entire movie. And they're like, no, nah, they're all dead now. Whatever. There were hundreds of them. I know. I know. There's no proof that they're all dead. John Goodman got them all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. I, I believe that. <laughs> I have to tell you about one silly but funny thought that I kept having during the whole thing, which was they left San Francisco to come to this little town. How much did they sell their home for? Do they regret it now? The values are so high now. When they decided to go back, were they able to like get the same kind of house? Did their house lose value? Were they in an apartment? I wanted to know some real, I needed some real estate information <laughs> like that. That that would have helped sew things together for me a little bit. So it's I'm just saying. Odd, he, he's a, a yuppie hero. We've been talking about how in a lot of these movies been watching the upper middle class and, and yuppies in particular have been uh, antagonists and this uh the object of ridicule and here the movie like pokes fun at him a little bit about the wine stuff but for the most part we're we're supposed to be on board with this guy who is pretty wealthy and kind of you know like can easily afford to move his family to a big house in the country and then move back to the city exactly who has a fancy bottle of wine that he cherishes more than anything else in I his know. life i think I the difference here is that he's a doctor he's not a stockbroker. It's Even a big difference. His wife, wife is, is a stockbroker. His wife is a stockbroker, but yeah. the movie doesn't give a shit about the wife. I know uh, that was that was yeah. <laughs> let's go. Let's go back and talk about that. That was just not even a developed character. She had less going on than Margaret than the for his first patient. Right, she was yeah. a little more well rounded, well written, and that that is something that um, I can't speak for all of the horror genre, but the women don't really get much to do other than scream and run. And they would be nice if they're, if those parts were more developed. Maybe they have been since it's just, it's not my, um, my favorite genre. So I don't know. Um, so I, the movie ends, they kill the spider. There's an earthquake in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah because right. man will never overcome nature. Right. He may have killed the spiders, right. but there's still earthquakes. Yeah. You know what, you know what that was to me? Um, it was like, hey guys, Tremors is a much better movie. Go check it out. <laughs> You're too clever. The graboids by half. are coming. Oh my god! For me, it was a wah 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 wah. Because then the wine bum. spills. Right. He didn't. He, His it was precious the one thing wine. he refused to throw at the spider. Right. And it just got wasted anyway. So clever. Oh my god! The screenwriter gets a pat on the back for that one. Uh, <laughs> so I take it I haven't changed anyone's minds. No. Let's talk about this movie's legacy. We like to go over the box office just to kind of put it in perspective. Okay. So this movie uh, cost $22 million, which oh, is wow. pretty expensive. But because of that, you get the location shooting in Venezuela, which probably wouldn't have happened in the $10 million version of this movie. They really went there. Wow. Yeah, they really went there in an area that had never been filmed before, uh, that, that mountain range. Okay. And you get the excellent spider effects and spider cinematography, which certainly were probably very expensive to pull off. Uh, but that's pretty expensive for this kind of movie. Yeah. I was just going to say the town looks like a real town. It looks, it does. In. It, it does. Look it like looks like a real house and all yeah, of that, but all that stuff, little things he said about why they moved there, you know, we left the crime behind. I'm like, come on, you know, please. 
San Francisco and that. Yeah, give me a break. All right. Anyway, please continue, Ben. Movie opens July 20th, 1990 uh, to eight million dollars. It opens in third place behind Ghost and Die Hard 2, which are just eating up the box office. Uh, so that's not a great place for it to be, but it manages to stick around for a while and grosses $53 million domestically. No no worldwide release. A $22 million budget, $53 million means that made its money back, including the marketing budget. Wasn't a huge barn burner, but was successful enough that everyone keeps their jobs. And... In the scheme of things, the film actually stacks up pretty well in the year. We like to do this thing called the ranking game, where Nat tries to guess where this lands on the list of the top domestic box office grosses in the year 1990. So, Nat, what do you think? Where does 53 million get you? See, this Nat used game. to like the game, but now he hates this the game. game. <laughs> All right. Let me Give just go to shot. my random number generator. Uh, I'm going to put it at, like, 27? Nancy, do you have a guess? I was going to guess 60. 60. Nat is the closest. Wow. This movie comes in 22nd place. Nat. And just right. to put that in perspective, that's above RoboCop 2, above Rocky 5, above Predator 2. This movie did pretty well. The only horror movie that does better than it this year is Misery, which oh, was a like huge it. hit. Yeah, okay. Wow. Um, so the movie was, you know, it, it, it's, it wasn't... A Spielberg level success, but it 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 did what it needed to do. Hey, wait a minute, Misery, well developed female character. I'm just saying. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And and Gross is more in the box office. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a correlation. Listeners, we do have a Misery episode if you want to check it out. Just <laughs> oh oh <laughs> good good good. Uh, <laughs> it's no, that's excellent. Good, like internal synergy. I like that. <laughs> uh, to the the movie was successful enough that. In 2018, Amblin and then James Wan's company, Atomic Monster, announced that they were going to remake the movie. So there might be a new arachnophobia in the next couple of years. Get ready for CGI spiders, everyone. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, if you're going to do, I respect the fact that they used a lot of real spiders. CGI spiders, that's BS. <laughs> no, no. I call I BS. Yeah. I agree. All right. So the last thing we like to do is try and tie all of the films of 1990 together by identifying themes and uh, uh, um, visual elements and narrative elements that you can trace across multiple movies. Nat, did anything stick out to you in this one? I mean, obviously the yuppie thing, which we talk about a lot. And I mean, it had a lot of in common with tremors and just like the small town aspect of it, but that's just one movie. Um, for me, it was just this, the Spielberginess of the whole thing. And, like, this really is, like, they've really, at this point, figured out how to just completely rip off one guy's way of making a movie. And it's super cynical, and it's just there's more cynicism to come for the next 30 years with Marvel and with <laughs> all the shit, all the stuff we see now. Uh, that's all I got. I'm very cynical. I'm sorry. No, that's I don't all right. know if, Nancy, you have any thoughts on this? You haven't seen a lot of the other films, uh, but I mean, you may have in the past. Yeah, it was. Uh, what do I think? I think that's 30 years ago. And boy, uh, more than anything, looking at this, I'm thinking, wow, the technology has just advanced so far. There were no cell phones in this movie. There were the um, the electronic gadgetry just looked really uh, old and, and clunky. And, um, I, you know, I don't know. I. I was 
the 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 little crawlers just got kind of like unnerved me to the point that I was like, I'm gonna really kill uh, Nathaniel. That's really <laughs> that was my runner. For, for, I thought he was born this year. From the from now until the day I die, I will really get him for this. No, I didn't really think that. No. Oh God. What have no, I, done? I can't tie it in the way you guys can. I mean, there are there were some themes, I guess, but um, you know, I don't know. It was just kind of odd and. And I think that if they, I would have liked to see more of Margaret. I like that character. You know, yeah. that's really she not telling you anything about it in context with the 90s. Sorry. Nat, you sort of mentioned this here. The thing that really stuck out to me is how this movie is so unlike the other films that we've watched, how it is directly contrary to a lot of the themes we have identified. So it has yuppies as the heroes instead of the antagonists. It uh, is we talked about like how there's a lot of new voices emerging in 1990. And this is decidedly not that no, it's very old fashioned, but the people making it and the story it's telling, um, it's an effects heavy film, but it is using very old school effects, uh, you know, wires and string instead of, uh, it's eschewing things like computers and the new technologies that we've been seeing emerge in the other films we've been watching. Uh, there's no crime in the movie. It's explicitly avoided. And the one that I think is the most interesting is we've talked about how 1990 exists in the fallout of the Cold War. And the Cold War births the creature feature. It is our anxiety about the atomic power and the existential threats and the enemy among us that leads to movies like them and the classic monster movies of the 50s. And this movie exists entirely apart from that now because in 1990 the cold war is over and the movie makes no comment on that and 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 has no relationship to that you know why because i think (laughs) that this movie has no point of view at all it is just made to make another spielberg movie and you know you were talking Okay. No, so let me sorry. bring it all circle. Let me bring it all circle because <laughs> I designed this whole episode all right, all right, secretly right, right. for this moment, which is that preach, my brothers. That that contrariness, that 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 um, blindness to where the industry is at in 1990, actually really speaks to the Spielberg element in the film, because 1990 is close to the lowest ebb in Spielberg's entire career. Hmm. After he releases Jaws in 75, he has a seven-year stretch where he, every movie he makes, knocks it out of the park. But since E.T., it has been a bunch of attempts to branch out that have been mostly rejected, either in whole or his part of them have been rejected, and sequels, which he had never done before. He's just pumping out Indiana Jones movies. How much can he really feel about those? And how much, how seriously is the industry taking those? Yeah. And so by the time we get to 1990, it sort of looks like the Spielberg era is over. And this movie is out of touch and out of date and is not representative of the industry as a whole and is the last throes of, you know, the once dominant giant. A lot of the top movies of the year are deliberately anti-Spielbergian. Things like Pretty Woman and Ghost are much more sexually explicit than Spielberg will ever get in his movies. He stays away from that. Dances with Wolves 
is trying to be more mature and spiritual as a crowd-pleasing film than his are. You've got action movies, but they're Hunt for Red October and Die Hard 2 and Total Recall, which are way grittier and nastier or more tech-driven than his films. Right. Of the top 25 movies of of that year, really only Arachnophobia and Back to the Future Part 3 are Spielberg films. Well, that kind of tells you right there. It's kind of like running out of gas. They're sort of like, yeah. You could certainly make the argument, I want to at least, you know, put the pin in this for the end of the season. Home Alone is kind of a Spielberg movie, you know, kid on an adventure. Sure. But it's only in, in I think, only in, in, in the barest outline, now not he, in the actual execution. Did he produce or have a hand in that? No. Okay, fine, good. I mean, come <laughs> on. Let somebody else have some bread. Gee whiz. So there we are. I think 1990 is... The year Hollywood tried to see what it would be like if it no longer had Spielberg. Mm. And of course, by the time we get to 1993, Spielberg releases Schindler's List in Jurassic Park in the same year. He pulls a Michael Jordan, comes out of retirement. And even though he then doesn't make another movie for four years, it's over. It's he's then he's Spielberg again. No, I mean, he's had an amazing career and anybody that has a seven year stretch of really good stuff or whatever it was and then is dormant for a while. That's still... That he's still around. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's pretty amazing. And I've never been in any of his movies, not even the smallest, itty-bittiest part in one of those big hits. If I just got an itty-bitty part in one of those things, if I was the one who said, he won't go any further, this is as far <laughs> as he goes. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. I'm so sorry, Nancy. No, it's all right. It's you all right. You should have been in the BFG. Well, in the... <laughs> That was, uh, isn't that his most recent His, movie? like, really bad the, the Roald Dahl anim- animated. Dahl, like, oh, CGI. Oh, God. <laughs> it was his first, it was his first Disney movie. He was, that was, like, the big marketing push, is that Spielberg always wanted to make a film for Disney. Oh, my goodness. But they never quite aligned. Yeah. Uh, and then he makes a garbage It's so okay. Movie. No, it's fine. It's fine. So, what did we learn here? Did we learn, we don't even need to talk about what we learned. I think we kind of know what we learned. <laughs> We got to wrap yeah. this up. Yeah. Oh, I wish I I want to talk. Okay. So okay. next time I want to be, I want to be in a movie that doesn't have any insects. All right. I just sure. don't really need that right well, now. And you are welcome back anytime. It's I, been a real pleasure oh, to talk to you. Thank you. This was, yes. this was really fun. The only by the only weird byproduct was at one point um, last night, I accidentally moved these and I was like, ah! you know, I moved my headset. <laughs> uh, you guys can't see it. My headset cord was in a strange place and I was like, ah! you know, so that was, so it that got was, you. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, will you be watching this movie again anytime soon? Has, has the tide turned yeah, at all? Totally. You I'm will. sure I will watch this film again. I will show it to my kids. Okay. Um, I, 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 why Ben? Why? I will burn every copy I come across. I will dox I, any streaming website that hosts it. <laughs> okay. I'm kidding. I, I find it just, I, I still enjoy it. I think it is, uh, um, a, a journeyman film, you know, it's not, it's not a, the work of a, of a master or an expert, but it, it functions exactly like it needs to. It's very entertaining. It's very fun. It's got some great, um, spider cinematography and effects that I will always spider enjoy. Spider matography, we can call spider it. Spider matography. There we go. Coin it now. Trademark. Mm, mm, mm. All right. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Back to the Movies wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on social media at BTTM Pod 
on Instagram, Twitter, Gmail. Reach out to us. Give us feedback. Thank you to Andy Gagnon for our awesome music. Nancy, do you want to plug anything before we go? Listen to the Giles Files. Subscribe. It's a fun, it's a really fun podcast with uh, all kinds of things about politics and culture. And sometimes I even do very bad parody songs. It's Ooh. worth it. <laughs> and it's on Apple, uh, Stitcher, uh, Google Play. And I, I think maybe anywhere you can listen to a podcast. And if you listen, for God's sakes, not only subscribe, but write us a great review. And watch CBS Sunday Morning, one of the coolest shows on TV. Thank you. I love Sunday morning. Thanks. Well, for Back to the Movies, this has been Nat. This has been. We'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Back to the movies.